All right. It's good to be back with you again, and we are picking up on episode 33 of our sermon series. We're in the home stretch as we're telling the entire story of the Bible. We began in uh, September with Genesis, and we we talked about the resurrection on Easter, and now we're going into the book of Acts. We have four sermons left to wrap up the story of the Bible, and uh, I'm, I'm really excited because the further we get into the story, the, the denser it becomes because individual moments will pull on a whole bunch of threads from the Old Testament all in, in one place, and I'm, it's exciting to see that happen. Uh, it also means that I have, the further we get into the series, the more I have to summarize before we can start the sermon. So let me summarize for us where we've been uh, as we get into the story of Acts. So what we've been saying is that the Bible is the story of God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in his presence. God made the world and he made people in order to rule the world, rule over the world on his behalf. So we were the part of creation that would respond to God and to order things according to his will. And then he came down to live with us on the seventh day and that was the goal. And then we messed it up. We rebelled against him. We tried to set up our own kingdoms instead of obeying him. And we kept messing it up and kept messing it up until finally God launched this plan to restore his design to the world through one group of people known as the Israelites. So he chose Abraham and his family, and he gave them a particular place, the land of Israel. And he came down to live with them in the tabernacle and later the temple. And he gave them a specific purpose. And their purpose was to reveal to the world who God is and what he wants for his people. So God gave them 613 rules in the law of Moses for how they were to live in this place so that the communities around them could look at Israel and the way they lived with each other, the way they worshiped, the way they interacted with their God, and they could see who God is and what he wants for humanity. Unfortunately, the Israelites weren't any better than the rest of us at obeying God. Instead, they rebelled against him, they tried to build their own kingdoms, and it turned into a mess. And it got so bad that it reached a point where God basically decided, the only way I can reveal anything about who I am to the world through Israel is to say that that's not me. Whatever, whatever my kingdom looks like, it's not that. And so he called the covenant broken, he sent them into exile to show the world that that, is not, that was not his goal. And the Israelites spent about 500 years in exile. Some of them got to come back to Jerusalem. Most of them stayed spread out all around the known world. The ones that came back to Jerusalem started this new program to try and get back in relationship with God. They built a new temple, and they, they reaffirmed the old covenant. But they did it in this different way that was all focused on keeping the Gentiles away. They wouldn't let them help with the temple. They wouldn't let them go to the temple. They wouldn't let them live in Jerusalem. And, and they tried to keep as far away from Gentiles and lawbreakers as they could. And they just sat in their holy huddle and focused on meticulously keeping the law. The problem is their whole design was that they were supposed to be sharing, they were supposed to be showing the world what God wants, and now they're doing the opposite. And so along comes Jesus. And Jesus steps out into, into uh, Galilee and says, the kingdom of God is coming. And what that means is that God is ready to get back to work with Israel. He's ready to relaunch the plan. He's ready to put everything back together. And he tells them, you need to repent, meaning you need to change course because the course that Israel has chosen is the wrong way to be God's people. You need to follow this other way that we, we looked at in the Sermon on the Mount about how we're supposed to be a light. We're supposed to show, like, show the Gentiles who God is and what he wants for his people. 
And ultimately, after three years of ministry, Jesus goes into the temple, which is kind of the, the, the center point, the symbol of this uh, way of Jewishness that the Jewish leaders were, um, had been following for 500 years. And he comes into the temple, and he provokes a confrontation, and he basically calls the Jews to make a choice. Are you going to follow my way of being God's people, or are you going to stick to your own way of being God's people? And the people of Jerusalem chose to reject Jesus' way of being the Messiah, his way of being God's people. And he was handed over to the Romans, and he was killed. And then two weeks ago, we talked about how suddenly out of nowhere, Jesus, uh, who's been executed in this humiliating way, is alive again. And it's not just that he's breathing again. It's a different kind of life, this kind of life that God had promised would happen when his plan was fulfilled, this eternal life. And so suddenly out of nowhere, we're surprised to find out that the whole plan has been fulfilled, that Jesus was right about what it means to be God's people, and that somehow his dying on the cross dealt with their, the fact that they broke the covenant, and somehow he has, has become the person who shows the world who God is and what he wants for his people, and everything has been resolved in Jesus. And that leaves us with the question, what now? Why wasn't that the last chapter of the story if Jesus has fulfilled everything that Israel was called to do? And that's what the book of Acts sets up for us, is it shows us what happened to the followers of Jesus and how God continued to work through them to to build his kingdom, and to build on what happened in the resurrection. So as we read our opening passage of Acts, I want you to keep in mind the coordinate system that we use to keep our bearings. We're going to look for who is the story about, where is their home, how can they meet with God, and what did God tell them to do. And that'll help us figure out where we are and where the story is headed. After his suffering, Jesus presented himself to the disciples and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. All right, so who's the story about? At this stage, as Jesus has ascended into heaven, uh, the people who are left behind are the disciples. So the story is focusing mainly on the disciples. But we also remember that throughout the story, the Jews have been the people of God. God said he was going to save the world through the Jews. And so the Jewish people are not out of the picture. So we'd say that the story is specifically about the disciples, but with, with uh, the, the Jewish nation in mind. Where is their home? Their home is Galilee and Judea. These are the Roman provinces that the promised land has been carved up into. But notice the, the vast majority of Jews do not live in these areas. They live all over the known world. They're, it's called the diaspora, the, the scattering of Israel. They live in, from Babylon to Spain and from Turkey to Ethiopia. Just everywhere that the Roman Empire knows of, there are Jewish communities there. Now, the presence of God, how can they meet with God? 
Well, here's the tricky one, because what we've been saying since the baptism is that the presence of God is not in the temple. God never returned to his temple. It's in Jesus. But where's Jesus now? Jesus is in heaven. And so if Jesus has ascended and Jesus was the presence of God on earth, then we're kind of back to square one, it would seem, that we don't have the presence of God on earth. So that's something that will need to be solved. And finally, we look at what did God tell them to do? And there's two main things that he told them to do. Number one is to wait for the Spirit. Just wait here. They're excited. They want to know the timelines. They're like, all right, you're alive. So that means, and the plan is fulfilled. So that means everything's right now, right? Like, we're done. Story over, and let's see the kingdom come in its fullness right now. He says, no, you're going to have to wait, which must have been really hard to do. Second of all, he tells them, once the Spirit comes, then you're going to witness to Jesus. You're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So wait for the Spirit, and then when the Spirit comes, then you're going to start witnessing to me, and to my message, and to my kingdom. So, the Acts tells us that Jesus was here for 40 days after the resurrection, and then he ascended. And then the next thing that's going to happen is at Pentecost, which is 50 days after, after Passover. So it's a, they wait for about 10 days. And the, all the believers of Jesus that are in Jerusalem are gathering together, and they're just praying and waiting for 10 days. And I have no idea what that was like for them. I don't know where they were at, but I can imagine thinking, well, where is he? What are we waiting for? Why hasn't this happened now? But there's a reason why they have to wait for 10 days for the Spirit to come. But first, let's see what happens when the day of Pentecost comes around. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them was filled with the Holy Spirit. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Okay, that is a very brief passage that has a very, very dense meaning. This is one of those places where a bunch of things from the Old Testament, a bunch of threads, get pulled together at once. What should we be thinking of when we hear about a rushing wind and, tongue, and fire descending on these people? What should we be thinking about? What does fire remind us of throughout the Old Testament? Miraculous fire. You might think of the burning bush, is when Moses interacted with God. Most prominently, the first really prominent place you would think of is in Exodus, at the end of the book of Exodus, when the people are at the mountain and God's supposed to be going with them into the promised land, and so he has them build him a tabernacle where he can live. And so he moves off the mountain into the tabernacle. And it says, when they finish the tabernacle, it says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. So fire over the tabernacle was a sign that God was home. And then when they go to make the first sacrifices, if you remember, fire shot out of the tabernacle and lit the, the, the uh, altar. So there's, oh, there's, and that fire stayed. So the, the flame in front of the tabernacle was lit by the fire of God. So fire is the, the sign of God's presence. 
And God visibly, tangibly descends on the tabernacle. And then when they build the first temple, he visibly, tangibly descends on the, sec- on, the, on the temple. When they build the second temple, God doesn't show up. But you remember that the Spirit of God descended on Jesus in that visible, tangible way. And now, in this surprising way, in the middle of Jerusalem, a, wind, a gust of wind blows through and fire comes down and descends on the believers of Jesus which is a sign of the Holy Spirit. And what we're, it tells us explicitly that the Holy Spirit is there, but what we're meant to connect that with is the Holy Spirit coming down onto the temple and the tabernacle. Because what that tells us, not only is the Spirit of God in these people, but that means that they are the new temple. This is why in multiple places in the letters, they, the, the believers are called the temple of God. Because this is the moment when the Holy Spirit descended on them. Notice, there is actually a temple in the same city, but it didn't descend on the temple. It descended on these people. But that's not the only thing that's happening. Like I said, this is a very dense moment. Because Jesus, when he tells them that this is going to happen, you remember he, he mentions John the Baptist. He reminds them what John the Baptist said. And John the Baptist set this moment in a very specific context. Way back in the beginning of Luke, it says that John said, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am, not, I am unworthy to, tie, to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the, his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. If you remember when we talked about John the Baptist, John the Baptist preaches this message that he's calling the, the Israelites, the Jews, to repent, to turn from this, this way of being Jewish that they have been following for hundreds of years and to truly repent and follow God sincerely, right? And he's saying, choose this way instead of the old way. And he says that and, and he, the, his water baptism was a symbol of that, or was, was, a, was a, a way of making that choice. When you get baptized, then you are making that choice to go from one way to the other way, right? But then he, whenever he preaches, he couches it in terms of judgment. He says, there's somebody coming who is going to pass judgment and is going to decide which of these ways is right. He's going to point out whether the old way of doing things is right or this way that I'm preaching doing things is right. And the way he will show that judgment is through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So what's happening is when in the middle of Jerusalem, when you've got the temple on the mountain and you've got all the biggest religious leaders in, in Judaism in this city, the Holy Spirit descends. It doesn't descend on the building. It doesn't descend on the priests. It descends on this community of fishermen and other rabble who are following Jesus. And that's Jesus passing judgment on who the faithful followers of God are. So the Spirit of God descended onto Jesus' followers, and at the same moment, it's marking them out as the new temple and as the true Israel. For centuries, there's been this conversation going on within Judaism about who are the true Israelites, who are the ones who are really being faithful to God. And there was a sense, ever since they really got off track and, and the prophets would have to call them back, there was a sense that within ethnic Israel, there were people who were actually faithful to God and they were the true Israel. And what Jesus is doing in this moment by sending the Spirit on the church is saying that the Israel that is part of God's mission is the ones who are following me. That is the true Israel. 
But we still haven't answered why this had to happen on Pentecost. Why God could have done this any day, what we've described so far. But there's one more huge thing that's going to happen in this story. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Why were they there from every nation under heaven? Because it was Pentecost, and they had traveled there for a feast. So Jerusalem is populated with a whole bunch of visitors um, because, of, uh, because of the feast. South Dakota, motorcycle, Sturgis. It's like Sturgis. You familiar with Sturgis? It's like a tiny town that all of a sudden is huge because of a motorcycle rally. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Um, it's like that, okay? And so when they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it then that each of us hears it in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Now, Luke has just given us a map of where all these visitors are from. And I'll show you an actual map of all those visitors. And you can see, so here's Jerusalem, and you've got people from all the major centers of the diaspora, the dispersed Jews, right? From all over the known world, Jews have come into this place. And this map and that list is a reminder to us of one of the parts of the plan that remains unfulfilled, which is that the Jews are dispersed. They're not in the land. They're not in the place where God called them. And there was this promise in Scripture from the prophets that at a key moment when the Messiah arrived, God would gather Israel back together. So Isaiah in chapter 11, he says, In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The root of Jesse meaning the, the son of David. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather together the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Did you notice that Isaiah lists a bunch of locations there? And if you chart those locations on a map, you know what it looks a lot like? It looks like the map of the people who are there from Pentecost. Because what's happening in this moment is that God has, uh, God has announced these people as the true Israel, the true people of God. And with, it just hap- so happens that within earshot of this moment are members of the Jewish community spread all across the world. And so they all come to check this out. And the gift that the Holy Spirit gave them was specifically designed to pique their interest. Right? They're speaking languages of these people. So they all come around, and Peter launches into the first sermon of the church. And it's very much the same kind of thing that I said at Easter. In fact, that was my inspiration, was he basically tells the story of Jesus and says, hey, Jesus claimed, he, he, he testified to us who he was with miracles, and he was killed, and now he's alive. And if he's alive, then that means he must be king. And he preaches this message to all of these people. And he says, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to their heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? 
Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The pro- this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Do you see what just happened in that moment? It's amazing how often God is fulfilling his plans in ways that go unnoticed by the powers that be. That in that moment, in some neighborhood in Jerusalem, the regathering of Israel was happening. Because Jews from all over the known world were called together and were joining, were submitting to Jesus and were joining the true Israel. And so this is the moment when God begins to call together Israel from all the corners of the earth and unite them in one nation under one king. So Jews from all over the world submitted to Jesus, reuniting the scattered Israelites under the true king. So in this one brief moment, in this one chapter, all these promises, all these plot lines from the Bible are starting to come together in these really exciting ways. But... Really big claims are being made here. It's a big deal to get one group of of people together and say, we are the true Israel. And you really need to back that kind of a claim up. And the next several chapters of Acts, in my opinion, are all about backing that claim up. So let's look at, we're going to look at two passages that describe what it was like to be part of the first Christian church of Jerusalem. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to everyone, to anyone who had it in need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Chapter 4, it says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, what is the point of these passages? Is this, is this a formula that every church is supposed Am I going to start asking you guys to start selling property and bringing the money on Sunday morning, something like that? That's not the point of these passages. They're not necessarily a line-by-line blueprint. What they are meant to do in the story is they're meant to show us a community that is actually finally living out the vision of the law of Moses. The kind of community that the law of Moses was supposed to create. Just think about what it would have, because the Israelites never actually followed the 613 laws. And the ones we know they didn't follow were the Sabbath laws. They, they did okay with the Sabbath day. But you're not just supposed to do it once, once a week. You're supposed to take an entire year out of every seven years. And during that year, you're supposed to forgive all debts. And you're supposed to free slaves. And every 50th year, you're supposed to return all the land to its original owners. And this whole, the whole vision of the law of Moses is this community that is radically obedient to God and cares for each other. And, that's the, and it's supposed to create this distinct society that shows the world who God is and what he wants for his people. And they never really got there. 
But at this moment, in these early days in the church of Jerusalem, what you actually see is they're doing it. The way they're living together is revealing to the people of Jerusalem who God is and what he wants from his people. And so the way they do things, the way they take care of their own, the way they love each other is showing the other people in Jerusalem, like, hey, this is actually what God called us to be. There's something to this Jesus thing because they're actually doing what God has been trying to get the Israelites to do all along. And we couldn't get there by pushing out all the Gentiles and sinners and just meticulously keeping the the rules. So what's happening in this moment is that the Christian Jews, they formed a community that finally lived out God's design for his people. And that was the evidence of their claim to be the true Israel. But God hadn't just designated them the true Israel. He also designated them the new temple. And that is a dynamite claim. That is an explosive claim. And, it, and there's a really cool moment that we, you may not recognize as a confrontation between two temples, but that's really what it is, and it happens in chapter 3 of Acts. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those who were going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit together at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were, amazed, they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. What you're seeing there is the clash of two temples, and the victory of one over the other. Why was this man sitting outside the temple gate? He was there to beg, but he was begging outside the temple gate because he's not allowed to go in the temple. Because the temple grounds are supposed to reveal God to the world by revealing his purity. And the only way that they have to do that is to exclude impure people. So if you, are, if you have a skin disease... If you are crippled, if you have any sign of death or decay, you can't enter the temple grounds. You're unclean because that would send the wrong signal about who God is. So the only way that the temple building can be clean is by keeping people out. And so this man has been excluded from the temple for years. But then Peter and John walk by, and they don't have any money to give him, but what they do give him is restoration. Remember, when they make him whole again, they don't just give him a physical ability back that he had lost. They restore him to the community of God. When he goes running and leaping into the temple, he hadn't been in there before. And since he's been begging outside that door day after day after day, everybody in that temple grounds knows who he is. And all of a sudden, he comes jumping and leaping and and refusing to be quiet and gets everybody's attention because he's finally in the temple, restored to God's community. And that's what the true temple can do. The temple of Jesus doesn't maintain purity by excluding. It maintains purity by transforming people. It actually has the ability to change people, to take this man who is crippled and bears in his body a sign of the decay of this world and is able to restore him so that he can enter the community. That is a claim to say that whatever is in the disciples and the followers of Jesus is superior to this building of the temple. 
So as the Christians lived and worshipped in Jerusalem, God revealed that his presence was with them. Because through, his, through the presence of God in his church, people were able to be restored to God's presence, which the temple could never do. By this point in the story, in the sermon series, though, you know that the power of the temple is jealously guarded by the temple leaders. In fact, it's interesting that in Acts, the Pharisees, who have no real claim to the temple, they kind of fall off as enemies of the Christians. In Jerusalem, the enemies of the Christians are the temple leaders, the Sadducees, and the temple guards, because they all get their power from the temple. And they recognize this for exactly what it is. This is an attack on the power of the temple and the role of the temple in God's plan. So they get really angry. They actually arrest Peter and John after this. And they, they beat them and, let them and tell them not to, not to preach anymore and let them go. And they start preaching again. And so they arrest them and throw them in jail overnight. But an angel comes and lets them out and tells them to go back into the temple and start preaching again. So they preach again. And so they arrest them again and they tell them not to, not to preach anymore, but it doesn't work. And you can see them building this momentum and victory to victory to victory that, that the, this old temple cannot keep down the temple of God. And then they change their tactics a bit, these, these temple leaders. They single out a guy named Stephen. Stephen is a, a younger convert, a younger member of the church, but he's, he's, able to, he's, he's really a really powerful speaker and able to, to defend the gospel really well, and he's getting a name for himself, and so they target him. And they they dust off a playbook that they used about, you know, that they used when Jesus was in Jerusalem. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Remember, it's the same thing they accused Jesus of, wanting to destroy the temple. Because that's where they're vulnerable, that's where their power comes from, and they, they see him as a threat to the temple. And so they, they put him on trial, and Stephen launches into this, this sermon that basically the whole point of the sermon is to say, you guys always do this. You always miss what God is doing. You always get focused on the building instead of the spirit. You've been doing this the whole time. Things, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And they don't like hearing this. And Stephen finishes by saying, uh, it says, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's him testifying that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. It's the exact same thing Jesus said that the priests were going to see on, in his trial. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged out both men and women and put them in prison. The temple leaders felt threatened by the church and tried to stop them through violent persecution. I, I try to read these stories as if I don't know where they're going, and I have to imagine that for the people uh, in the church in this moment, this was, I mean, 
Losing someone to martyrdom would always be hard, but this had to have been just the gut punch of all gut punches because they have been undefeated this far, right? And they have no reason to think they ever will face a defeat, that they ever will be overcome by any of these powers. They've, been, they've faced off with the Jewish leaders already, and, and the Jewish leaders were completely impotent to do anything. And now they targeted Stephen, and they killed him. And they unleashed this persecution so fierce that it drove this new church out, out from the city. And I imagine that that's not what they expected to happen for the future of the church. I, I imagine that they expected the, the course of the church to go differently. I would imagine they expected to at one point have the entire city of Jerusalem converted, the entire city of Jerusalem believing in Jesus. I imagine they, they had a very different, very constantly victorious vision of the growth of the church, and that's not what happened. This is a very dark and difficult period, and I have to imagine... I, I, I'm not actually sure what it would have been like to be in that moment and what kind of doubts might arise, even for someone who has seen Jesus alive, to have his, the plan, your expectations suddenly so disappointed. And yet, if we read a bit closer, we see that even in the midst of this persecution, God's plan continues to be fulfilled. Because it says, on that day a persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. But they didn't just run to Judea and Samaria. What did they do when they got there? It says, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. What did Jesus told them to do? He said they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And if you fast forward to chapter 11, we get a, in chapter 11, he's gonna, Luke is going to look back and say, now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Now we'll talk about that only among the Jews part next week, but that's all the way up the Mediterranean coast. What that means is that in this persecution, they were scattered to the very places God was, had told them they were going to go. So God used the persecution of the temple leaders to disperse his church out into Judea, Samaria, and the world. Even in the midst of this seeming defeat, God's plan was unfolding, and his mission to bring the message of Jesus and the kingdom of God to the whole world is going on. It looks like a defeat, but it's not a defeat because Stephen can be defeated but the Spirit of God that's in Stephen cannot. The church can be scattered, but the Spirit of God that is in them cannot be defeated. Now, there's a lot more story to tell of the growth of the church in this really important moment that's going to happen in, in next week's sermon about their relationship to the Gentiles. But today, we're going to pause the story here and reflect on what this story teaches us about what it means to follow Jesus today. And one of the Exciting parts now is that we're starting to lock in parts of the plan into where they are for us. We're starting to get into the situation in which we find ourselves, the stage of the story we find ourselves in. So for instance, the presence of God is the same now as it was the day of Pentecost. God is present in this world in and through his people. He's not in a building that you have to journey to. He is in his people. 
God is in this building because his people are in this building right now. But he's also in the other buildings around Turner where his people are gathered. And when we all leave, he's not going to be here anymore. He's going to be in the places where we all went. The Spirit of God can be anywhere his people are. In fact, it is anywhere his people are. That's a humbling thing to remember. It's not optional. You don't like to get to decide whether you're going to bring God with you like you, bring, you decide whether you're going to bring your keys or not. He's with you. You are a temple wherever you go, and that is a high responsibility. You've heard me joke about why I don't put a fish on the back of my car because I'm not sure that I can <laughs> reflect God well by my driving. But we are a temple wherever we go. And that means that we have the ability and the mission to carry the presence of God to every corner of this earth. And what I should say, I should rephrase that based on what I just said, that uh, to reveal the presence of God. We're carrying it whether we want to or not. Our mission is to reveal it. So go ahead and cross that out and write reveal. I'm change my mind. Uh, to reveal the presence of God in every corner. Now, I'm not saying that every one of us is called to foreign missions, although if you've been feeling that call from God, I would encourage you to seriously consider it because we need missionaries, but... The point is, it's not like the Holy Spirit showed up in Jerusalem and told everybody they needed to go be missionaries. They, they ended up preaching in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth because that's where they ended up. Right? They just preached where they went. Wherever God is taking you, wherever you end up, you are bringing the presence of God and you have the mission to reveal him. You want to know how God gets into our schools? By the students and teachers who bring Christ with them into our schools. You know, he gets into our workplaces by the, the people who bring God with them and reveal God's character in those places. They get into our grocery stores when we go buy groceries in a way that reveals God's character to people. He gets into traffic jams when we drive in a way that reveals God's character to people. At wherever we are going, we carry God's presence with us, and we can either show that or we can hide that. But our mission is to show the presence of God, to show the character of God, to show people who God is, and what he wants for humanity. Now, that is a really difficult task. And the Israelites were given that task and failed over and over and over again. But Pentecost also reveals to us the difference between them and us. And it's not that we're better. It's that we have the Spirit. The powers of this world will oppose us and our own natures will oppose us and all the cards are stacked against us being able to reveal who God is to the world. But none of that can defeat the Spirit of God. That's what makes the difference. It doesn't mean that you're going to go undefeated. It does not mean that you're going to go undefeated, but it does mean that even in your failures, God can reveal who he is. Even, the way, even in the way you pick yourself up, the way, you, the way you seek forgiveness, the way you repent, the way you live your life in whatever is thrown at you, you can reveal who God is. And the Spirit cannot be defeated. Even when you are defeated, the Spirit cannot be defeated. And so we go out not knowing what the challenges are going to be, not knowing what's, what we're going to face, but knowing that whether we, are, whether we see victory or short-term defeat, whether God is revealed in our weakness or whatever else happens, that the Spirit of God can be revealed to the world and the whole world can see who God is and what he wants for his people. That's the mission that we have today. The same mission that began all those years ago at Pentecost. Amen? 
As we close, I'm going to ask you to consider what, God is, what next step God is calling you to make. We believe that every time the gospel is preached, God speaks to us and, and calls us to follow him closer. And I don't know what that looks like for you, but there are a few things that, uh, there are a few big steps that we encourage people to consider. One is if, if you haven't given your life to Jesus and you haven't committed to following his way, today is the best way to do that. Today is the day to commit to being a part of this movement, to being a part of this movement of the Spirit, of, of letting go of your old life and letting him fill you and lead you to be the person he called you to be. That is a long path to walk, and we don't want anyone to walk alone, and that's what the church is for. And so we also encourage you to consider joining a small group or a service team. Small groups are ways that you can get together with the same group every week and build each other up and share your burdens and your joys and your victories and your defeats. And service teams are ways that you can give back and you can build God's kingdom by serving in the church or in our community. And if you want to join one of those, you can check the box on your Connect card. Finally, if you want to be committed to a family that is working to reveal God's nature to this community and to helping each other reveal God's nature to this community, that's who this church is seeking to be. So if you'd like to place your membership with us, we encourage you to sign up for a Connect class on your card. And we do those on a Sunday afternoon where we'll get together after church, have some food, and talk about who this church is, what we do, and how you can be a part of it. I encourage you as we stand and sing our final song to honestly and earnestly consider whatever step God is putting on your heart as you respond to his word today. Let's stand and sing.